Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Abby Hornacek. This is Tucker Carlson. And I'm Jessica Tarlov. This is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, March 28th, 2022. I'm Jared Halper. The war in Ukraine has already created a massive humanitarian crisis, but is an even bigger problem on the horizon, a global food shortage. It is not going to be pretty, and it hurts the poorest of the poor the most, because they're the ones all over the world are living from hand to mouth now. So we could have uh, literally a dozen nations around the world destabilized by fall. I'm Chris Foster. Some parents of younger kids are still waiting for a coronavirus vaccine. Clearly the Pfizer dose in the the two to four year olds is not enough and and that needed to be adjusted. But it seems like Moderna has a a dose that, that seems to be effective. And I'm Charlie Hurt. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. About 4 million people have left Ukraine since the Russian invasion a month ago. It is a refugee crisis on continental Europe unseen since World War II. We feel really like empty because we don't have our home and we don't have anything that we had. For those who are still in Ukraine, about 40 million men, women and children. The situation is growing more dire by the day. Mariupol on the southern coast has been relentlessly shelled. A city of about half a million people now largely cut off from the rest of the world, unable to guarantee food, electricity, and other basic essentials. Nobody helped. Apartments were burning. We asked to put out the fire and help. No one did it. Locals died on our watch. There is no water, food, nothing. David Beasley has seen firsthand and heard from these new refugees about hunger, suffering, and the humanitarian crisis. The level of need in Ukraine is, as you can imagine, growing by the day because you've got a country of about 44 million people. He is the executive director of the World Food Program, a food assistance agency of the United Nations. The World Food Program won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2020. Beasley, its director, has decades of experience in international aid. He was also the governor of South Carolina from 1995 to 1999. And uh, what we're seeing, uh, the, the ones that are the lucky ones are the ones that have already left the country, and they've got incredible loving, heartfelt support coming from the outside, you know, meeting them at the border. I mean, I've been there three times just in the last three weeks, and you still got 40 million people on the inside, of which 7 million on the inside are internally displaced. And they are going to be and are, in fact, struggling to get food as we speak now. Some of the supply chain system commercially is still working. It depends on where you are, like in the east, where there's you know the conflict hasn't hit there in a in a significant way yet. But those that are besieged, so what we're trying to do is focus on setting up a supply chain system, not to reach a hundred here, hundred there, but literally reach three to four million people. Talk to me about that aspect because uh, you know I've read that places like Mariupol are completely cut off. How do you get 
aid into a country that is an active war zone. I mean, there is active combat and shelling, it seems, around the clock in some of these locations. Yeah, you know, Jared, 80 percent of our operations are in war zones, areas of conflict. So we know how to do this. But let me tell you, when it's actively engaged and you don't get the deconfliction, uh, whether we can do an airdrop or bring trucks in. And right now, some of these places, you can't do any of that. And so we, we're trying to figure out bar cheat still whatever it takes to find a way to get inside some of these places by sea by air by land whatever it takes and so as we're scaling up because we're having to put this is not a small country so we're st- establishing prepositioned warehouses around the country trying to move supplies that are inside ukraine because we're doing everything we can but deconfliction right now is critical money access deconfliction whether it's airspace ground space uh, to move cargo supplies into the areas where people are of great need. I, I want to talk to you about that that global uh, supply, but you know, before that, what what is the World Food Program's history in Ukraine? I, I think when people think about the World Food Program, Ukraine, European countries probably aren't the first countries that come to mind. No, you know, you don't really. My goal is to put the World Food Program out of business, but it looks like we're going more and more and more into business in places like Ukraine. So we, we've got a ground presence, or, or more importantly, we have a ground working knowledge of Ukraine because it is a nation that the commercial industry and supply chain is working really pretty good, notwithstanding this war taking place now. And so it's going to have an immediate global impact in multiple different ways. I know that you talked about the the amount of grain that is grown, uh, produced in in Ukraine, and I, I had read that they're actually a, a big supplier of the World Food Program. So when you talk about what's happening now, what does that mean then for for these other countries that are still very dependent on on countries like Ukraine providing wheat, providing grains, providing the, these types of of core uh, needs? You know, this is what's interesting in the world, I think, is it's, it's starting to awaken to this reality because uh, we're not just talking about how this impacts the world food program with the 125 million people that we feed or reach on any given day, week or month. You've got a world population of 7.8 billion people and Ukraine grows enough food to feed 400 million. So if you pull that out of the marketplace, what's going to happen to global supply? supply chain, pricing, costing, as well as availability of food later in the year. So all the men, so to speak, are on the front lines fighting right now. Well, guess what? That's farmers who normally would be in the field planting right now. So if these men and and women are are on the battlefronts over the next three months, all of that global supply will be completely unavailable to the marketplace. Now, before Ukraine uh, crisis hit, we were already seeing a perfect storm at the World Food Program that was dynamically devastating multiple countries around the world because fuel was already spiking, food prices were already spiking, shipping costs were already spiking. Jared, just at the World Food Program, our increase in operational costs was $41 million more per month. So do the math. Now, here comes Ukraine crisis. Our now operational cost is going to be over $70 million more per month, which means that's four to 8 million people less that we will reach this year. Now, it's one thing not to reach. And so already because of lack of funding, I've already, our our, World Food Program, we've already cut 
50% rations to families, children all over the world, like Niger, Chad, Mali, uh, Yemen, where we feed 13 million people because of the ongoing war. We've just cut over the last month and a half, 8 million people down to 50% rations. And we're fixing to cut them down to zero because we're out of money. Now, that's just our operation. Now let's talk about what happens to the rest of the people around the world. I mean, that's sort of what I was going to move towards, right? So at this stage, what do you need from the Biden administration? What do you need from the U.S. Congress? Well, first, let's end these wars. You know, end some of these these wars, number one. Number two, we're going to need more money. And and I tell my conservative friends, it's like they're like, well, why should we send money to Chad or Niger when we have bridge problems, road problems, whatever it might be in, in your home state? I said, well, there's no free lunches here. And I may tell you what's going to happen. We can feed a Syrian in Syria, let's say, for 50 cents or in Guatemala. But if they end up migrating because of necessity, war, conflict, or, or extreme whatever shocks there may be, it costs a hundred to a thousand times more once they get into the United States or get into Germany. And so if we can reach them where they are, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, also Russia and Belarus produce about 40% of the base product for fertilizers. And if you don't have fertilizers, your yield will be at least cut by 50%. And already farmers are talking about cutting back on application because of the cost, talking about a yield harvest reduction globally. And then, so what I asked the G7 leaders to do is, do you have enough time to offset these multiple millions of metric tons of unavailable grain this year? Can you offset? So for example, I talked with the French uh, minister of foreign affairs and I said, you've got a lot of land set aside I said, you now need to reevaluate on this short emergency, short-term basis, allowing the farmers to, in fact, engage in the set-aside lands. Because the last thing we want to do is take a chance of not having enough food. We see what happens when you don't have enough food in, in, in poor countries. You have war, conflict, destabilization. What do you think is going to happen if you don't have enough food in New York or Miami or, or Washington, D.C. or L.A. or Chicago? It, it is not going to be pretty. And it hurts the poorest of the poor the most because they're the ones all over the world that are living from hand to mouth now. So we could have uh, literally a dozen nations around the world destabilized by fall. So it sounds like part of this is reevaluating policy on land use, a number of regulatory issues as it relates to agriculture. What is the program's relationship with Russia, with Belarus, and is that impacted? These are not countries that are war zones. Obviously, they are the subject of international condemnation and sanctions. And so I'm curious how that applies to sort of the overall work that, that you guys are trying to do. Well, we're, what we're asking every country, whether it's Russia, Belarus, or anything, do not put on export bans like Russia's now doing export bans. And that, that creates all types of havoc, as you can imagine, on the global supply. My biggest ask right now for Russia uh, is deconflict, allow us to move supplies into besieged cities so that we can reach innocent victims of this war. No matter which side you own, let us reach the children and the mothers and those not involved in this war so they can survive. Uh, because right now, people are begging for food. People are starving to death. And we can reach them if we get the access and the money. And we have enough money for the next couple of weeks. But actually, uh, we're running out of money. And so 
you know, if you go feed a few million people, you just don't go to the grocery store on Tuesday and buy it all for everybody on Wednesday. We need three to four weeks lead time to be able to move all these supplies in from Turkey, from Europe, from the United States, places like that. So that's going to be the big ask of, of G7 countries of other nations. Big time. They got to step up. And how they've been stepping up with the refugees has been absolutely amazing. Uh, that really is. But that's three million people. I got mm-hmm. 41 million people inside Ukraine. And then I got another couple of hundred million people around the globe that are marching towards starvation. It's a cumulative perfect storm catastrophe on top of catastrophe. Let me finish with this. How did you get involved with the uh, with the World Food Program? Yeah, you know, I got a phone call about five years ago uh, from a friend who'd been in the United Nations said, would you consider taking a role? And I said, no way. I'm not going to come work for the United Nations. <laughs> you know, I don't want a job, don't need a job. I'm in the private sector. And, and several Democrat, Republican friends in the United States Senate uh, said, uh, if you don't take this role, Trump's going to zero out the budget and the World Food Program does more to stabilize nations in any operation on earth. And I can tell you from experience, when you feed 125 million people, you know what they're thinking. I mean, people don't want to leave home, but if they don't have food in any degree of security, they go flee and do what's necessary. So if we can get food into their home, uh, and, and my thing is to put us out of business, I want to put the World Food Program out of business by creating resilience and sustainability and not just hand out food, hand out food. Now, in a short-term emergency, you know, you got to hand out food so they can survive. But the long-term, how do we create an opportunity for them to feed themselves and not need our support? Well, it has been true for a very long time, but I think moments like this remind us of how interconnected all of us are globally. And you guys are doing tremendous work. I appreciate that work that you're doing. Our best to you and thank you for the time, Mr. Beasley. Jared, thank you. You know, what we're asking people right now is don't ask us to take food from the hungry children to give to the starving children. Mm -hmm. There's enough wealth on the world today to help all the children. So, Jared, thank you very much. Talk to you again another day. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is Charlie Hurt with your Fox News commentary coming up. Coronavirus vaccines were first approved for emergency use for Americans 16 and older back in December of 2020. Younger teens could get the shots the following May, kids 5 to 11 in October. Still ineligible, around 20 million children in the U.S. under age 5. Pfizer's trial for younger kids is on hold over concerns about effectiveness. Moderna, though, is seeking emergency authorization for its vaccine for kids under 11. In trials, it's shown to be no more than 44% effective, preventing symptomatic illness among kids under 5. I do think it's worth it. And I think when you look at that number, a lot of people are recalling the days of 95% efficacy from the Pfizer and Moderna trials early on. And you can't really compare those numbers. Dr. Amish Adalge is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health, Security and Infectious Disease. This trial is with Omicron and Omicron is an immune evasive variant. So you wouldn't expect to see very high efficacy numbers at preventing any infection. However, with prevention of severe disease, which is rare in children, the the vaccines are going to be very durable in, in that in that context. And I think that's why I think especially if you have a high-risk child, a child maybe with asthma or whatever it may be, that these vaccines are going to be really important for them. So I, I wouldn't spend so much time looking at that number just because there's a lot behind it. 
Interesting. Um, and how about, is the idea also, besides protecting kids that may need a little extra help, is it to protect the grandparents and whoever else is at home? Does it help there? Certainly being vaccinated makes you less likely to contract COVID, even if it's not ironclad. And that does decrease the risk for others who may be immunocompromised, whom a child could spread it to. So I think on balance, the vaccine is a valuable thing for, for children. And I think that you have to also bear in mind that children's lives have really been on hold during this pandemic. And this vaccine is one way for them to reclaim a lot that they've lost. And I think this is a safe vaccine and it is moderately effective and especially effective against severe disease. They've had to work this, um, the dosage out for younger kids. Um, and forgive me if this is a scientifically stupid question, but I mean, there's a big difference in size between a six-year-old and an 11-year-old. And I mean, for that matter, between a 100-pound person and an obese person, does a person's size matter in terms of dosage of the vaccines? Not in the same way that it might matter when you're dosing a medication. Because what the vaccine does is it stimulates the immune system. And the goal is to use the lowest dose possible to get the appropriate response. And sometimes that correlates with size and body weight. Other times it doesn't. So, for example, uh, a, a child that's 12 years old would, would be getting something very similar to what an adult would be getting, the same dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So we don't always have to dose adjust. But the goal is, is to minimize injection site reactions while getting the same efficacy at protection against disease. And when you're talking about younger age groups, the risk-benefit calculation changes because they tend to be less likely to have severe disease. So you're less tolerant of someone's arm hurting for a long time, for example, a child or a fever in a child than you would be in an adult because the risk-benefit ratio is different. And I think that's why there's some adjustments of the doses. And clearly the Pfizer dose in the, the two to four-year-olds is not enough. And, and that needed to be adjusted. But it seems like Moderna has a, a dose that, that seems to be effective. And I know that the FDA is asking them to even look at lower doses to see if they can do that. Uh, tell me about multi-system inflammatory syndrome. I know there's some concern uh, about that with the vaccines in kids. Well, multi-system inflammatory syndrome is a bit of a mysterious condition that rarely occurs in children where the virus likely sets off some sort of hyper-inflammatory response in the, immune res in, in the immune system, meaning that the person gets very severe symptoms affecting multiple organ symptoms systems because of the way the immune system is reacting to COVID. When you, when you think about that, you, you, first of all, you have to think about two things. You know, can the vaccine prevent MISC? And is there any risk of the vaccine causing MISC? And there hasn't been any evidence that the vaccines can trigger MISC. And in fact, I would argue that being vaccinated against COVID is likely the best protection against that rare complication of MISC. A lot of mask mandates in schools are, have been lifted. Um, I suppose we can expect to see a return um, to the colds and the flus and the stomach bugs that little kids used to bring home. Definitely. We know that the social distancing and the masks were not just blocking COVID-19 transmission, but blocking many other respiratory viruses. So look what it did to influenza, for example. We basically have had two successive very mild flu seasons because of all of the COVID mitigation. But as masks come off in schools, you are going to see more of those respiratory viruses, more of those stomach viruses uh, coming back. And I think that's something that people should be uh, alert to happening that we're going to go back to somewhat of a baseline uh, and, and children do bring home lots of different respiratory viruses. Yeah. Uh, there's this Italian study that came out this week that says improved ventilation in schools. And I don't know how improved improved has to be uh, can cut COVID cases 82 percent. 
Has ventilation been under considered, underutilized as a tool against this over the last two years, or is it just easier said than done? I mean, is it is it really hard to improve ventilation to the degree you need to make a big difference? I think it's easier said than done is probably the the, the best way to think about what's happened. We know that transmission outdoors is very unlikely. And the more you can make an indoor situation look like an outdoor situation in terms of the number of air exchanges, the less likely you are going to see transmission. It's just that many of those schools have a very have old buildings. Sometimes the windows don't open. They need to be retrofitted and it costs a lot of money. And, and that's likely stifled the ability to increase ventilation at schools. But we also know that in the absence of improved ventilation, there are still other best practices that can minimize risk. Obviously, having everything at your disposal, in, including better ventilation, is the optimal way to do this. But we know that, for example, in schools, it's not really the sitting in desks that in classroom learning that's actually spreading. And it's mostly cafeterias, it's, it's uh, extracurricular activities, sports, those types of things are where the spread is, is most. So I wouldn't say that, it, that it's a precondition for every school to improve their ventilation. It would be great if they all could do it, but there are other best practices to keep spread down in, in a school that are also um, important as well. Yeah. So if you have the money and you have a building that can uh, that you can do it, then do it. Great. Um, well, speaking of ventilation, uh, airline CEOs are asking the Biden administration to drop the masking rules um, on airplanes. The planes themselves have been shown to be pretty safe, right? I mean, the ventilation in those has always been good. The air circulation, at least, that is. Um, the infection risk is more due to crowds in airports, right? Right. I, I think that it's a little bit paradoxical that of all the activities where masks are now considered optional, riding on a plane is a place where the government requires it because that's probably much safer than sitting at a bar or going to an indoor event that doesn't have the same level of ventilation as airplanes. So so I think that this is kind of a little bit not necessary. This isn't something supported by supported by science or consistent with the science because because of the number of air exchanges that occur on an airplane it's a very low risk activity compared to everything else people are doing without masks um i've seen studies that say a fourth vaccine shot for adults uh, so a second booster is beneficial others that say well maybe not so so beneficial at at this, this close to your first booster um who if anyone do you think should be rolling up their sleeve again I think for fourth doses, it really needs to be targeted, targeted towards those people where we're trying to protect them against severe disease, hospitalization and death. So that means probably the elderly, those with high risk conditions, especially the immunocompromised. I don't think that fourth doses make sense for the general population. Indeed, I think for most of the population, even third doses don't make sense. I think boosters needed to be much better, better targeted to actually achieve their effect, because our goal here is not to prevent all infections, but to prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death with these booster vaccines. And uh, th- we've not seen erosion of protection in healthy populations, even with with the two-dose regimen. And I think th- there's a lot uh, that's kind of gone wrong with our booster policy, but hopefully with fourth doses, they, they are much more targeted than they had been with thirds. Is it the kind of thing that, that becomes recommended to be an annual shot, like a flu shot? I think it's too early to know, because what we know... Uh, with the, with the flu shot, the reason why we give an annual shot is not as a booster. We give a new shot because we change the strains in them. And we've not done that for the COVID-19 vaccines. The vaccine you're getting now is directed against the ancestral Wuhan strain of the, of the virus. So it's a little bit of a, a false analogy to compare it to flu vaccines. There may be a time where we think about updating the vaccine uh, and changing the strains the way we do with flu, but that's not quite been worked out yet. There's a meeting that the FDA is going to be convening in the next couple of weeks where they discuss 
vaccine policy, and that's something that will probably be brought up. A lot of us, uh, a lot of America, the health, healthy, the healthy among us, are saying, "Look, we're done with this." Um, what are you watching in, for in terms of COVID levels rising again to the degree that we need more mitigation than we're doing? I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for this virus to be able to cause the same kind of harm that it could early on because now it's dealing with a population that has a lot of immunity from prior infection, a lot of immunity from vaccination, tools like antivirals and monoclonal antibodies, as well as rapid tests. So we have a lot of medical countermeasures that can blunt the impact. And it's not going to be the case. The cases always go down forever. They were always going to come back up at some point, but they're going to be sort of of a different flavor. They're going to be shifted toward the mild spectrum of illness. So to me, it's always been about hospital capacity. And I think it's increasingly unlikely that we see this virus or any of its variants be able to really put hospitals in the same place they were in, for example, during the Delta surge or during December and January of 2020, 2021, or even during the Omicron surge because of all of the the changes that have happened in the population and all the tools that we have. So it'll still be something that I continue to look at, but that's that's primarily what I'm focused on is hospital capacity because cases are going to go up and down. There's going to be hotspots, but they may not translate into hospitals getting into problems again. Dr. Amos Adalja is a senior scholar at uh, the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health, Security, and Infectious Disease. Dr. Adalja, thank you for coming uh, back on the show. Thanks for having me. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday. President Biden is scheduled to release his 2023 budget request, providing details on his administration's priorities and spending requests for all federal agencies. Tuesday. Blue Origin launches its fourth manned suborbital flight. Comedian Pete Davidson had been scheduled to be aboard the new Shepard space capsule, but backed out after the launch was delayed, citing a scheduling conflict. A Blue Origin employee will round out the six-member crew. Wednesday. U.S. astronaut Mark Vandehei is scheduled to return to Earth aboard a Russian Soyuz capsule after breaking the American record for time spent in space. He'll have spent 355 days in orbit, 15 days longer than the previous U.S. record set by Scott Kelly. Saturday. Former President Trump heads to Michigan for a political rally in support of GOP candidates seeking statewide and federal offices in the midterm election. It's one of several states Trump claims voter fraud was prevalent in the last election. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Denison, Fox News. Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Charlie Hurt. What's on your mind? One of President Abraham Lincoln's greatest challenges prosecuting the Civil War, he reportedly once lamented, was that all of his best generals were otherwise occupied writing editorials for newspapers across the North. No one has ever compared President Biden to Lincoln, but Mr. Biden faces a similar challenge as he resists the ocean of bloodlust in Washington to go to war against Russia and Ukraine. Luckily, Lincoln did not have to contend with the brave warriors of Twitter, or we would still be fighting the Civil War. It has become a near universal truth in Washington today that the United States has a moral obligation to get into this conflict to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine 
after more than 30 years of ignoring our own territorial integrity here in America. The mere suggestion that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky might consider his options carefully as he is on his own and his people are suffering brutally brings particularly blood-curdling howls from the press jackals in Washington. How dare we surrender to a freedom-killing bully like Russian President Vladimir Putin, the warrior journalists ask. Serious question. Why are all these armchair generals fat, balding, moon-faced, and prone to profuse sweating when in air-conditioned newsrooms? They are not exactly tip of the spear when it comes to actual fighting. These people could not battle their way out of a half-eaten bag of Doritos. Yet they are delighted to urge Americans to send their own sons to die in foreign wars that have no bearing on U.S. national security interests. And they come unglued at the mere mention that Mr. Zelensky might want to consider options to avoid the annihilation of his entire civilian population. Traitor. Russian propaganda. Putin stooge. These charges often come from Republican ranks these days, or supposed conservatives, who only qualify as conservative in a twisted sewer like Washington. They are the new woke, proudly beating their chests over their own vaunted virtue, though actually accomplishing nothing. Strike that. The only thing they might accomplish is prolonging carnage in Ukraine. But what the hell, it's not their children dying. All the armchair war talk in America leaves such a giant vacuum that it has fallen to the nation of Turkey to step in and try brokering a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia. Indeed, America's beacon of freedom has been snuffed out. Now, it turns out Russia spent the past 20 years developing hypersonic missiles that the United States does not have. In fact, America doesn't even have defensive weapons that can keep up with Russia's hypersonic missiles. Thanks to these very same armchair warriors in Washington, we spent the last 20 years losing a war in Afghanistan. Obviously, nobody deserves more blame for all the carnage than Mr. Biden himself. Few people in Washington have been more central to the foreign policy decisions that led to the situation we find ourselves in today. And of course, Mr. Biden deserves every bit of credit for his catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Thankfully, Mr. Biden took his 64th vacation from the White House this past weekend to go bike riding at the beach in Delaware. He wore a helmet. But as Captain Renault noted about his own heart on the tarmac in Casablanca, Mr. Biden's head is his least vulnerable spot. I'm Charles Hurt. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.